0: Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on them. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be
1: real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're privileged to have as our guest, Dr. Philip Swagel, Director of the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. His agency just released its annual Budget and Economic Outlook covering the years 2023 through 2033. It extends budget projections and economic forecasts over the next 10 years with the assumption that current spending and tax laws generally remain in place. At the Concord Coalition, we look forward to this report every year because the 10-year baseline gives an unvarnished and unspun view of the multiple fiscal challenges that lie ahead. So if you want to face the future, which is the main point of this program, then the CBO baseline is a good place to start. Uh, Joining me for the discussion today is Concord Coalition's chief economist, Steve Robinson, and a special guest appearance by Tory Gorman, who's going to call in in our third segment. Phil Swagel became the 10th director of the Congressional Budget Office in 2019. Previously, he was a professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the Milken Institute. From 2006 to 2009, uh, Dr. Swegel was Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department, and he's also served as Chief of Staff and Senior Economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House, as an economist at the Federal Reserve Board and the International Monetary Fund. He had earned his PhD in Economics from Harvard University and his AB in Economics from Princeton University. Phil and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future.
2: Thanks, Bob. Yeah, Bob, thanks so much. Thanks for having me
1: on. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us, Phil. I know this is a very busy time for you. Um, so we're gonna talk about the uh, the latest budget and economic update. And just to remind people, it is the uh, mission of CBO to provide uh, objective, nonpartisan information to Congress to help inform the budget process. And uh, probably the best known product in that regard is the budget and economic outlook. It includes the CBO's uh, projections for the coming decade, and that's commonly referred to as the baseline. And uh, that's based on uh, the assumption that current law will generally uh, remain in place. So, uh, Phil, I I have to say this is certainly a challenging time to be doing budget and and economic uh, Projections: We have uh, uncertain, lingering effects from the uh, COVID pandemic, and uh, most notably, the highest burst of inflation in 40 years. And now we have the Federal Reserve's attempts to try to combat that inflation, all of which makes it very difficult to, you know, project where the economy is going to go. And then that's effect on the budget. And then to add to that, we have uh, uncertain geopolitical. Uh, situation with the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, and you throw in the pending insolvency of Social Security and Medicare trust funds, and mm. there's this quite a mix that goes into this baseline. Um, so, you know, this year's baseline is quite a bit more pessimistic than the one you issued in, in May of last year. So let's just uh, begin with the basics. Um, you know, where are the deficits and debt headed over the next 10 years under current law
2: um yeah it is, as you said it's a challenging time and it's challenging both economically and fiscally that um, you know the uh, the US economy has re- recovered remarkably from the pandemic but toward the end of the year uh, important parts of the US economy showed signs of weakening. Um, and at the same time, inflation is still high. Inflation is coming down, but it's, it's still high. So economically, it's a challenging situation. Um, and then fiscally, the 10-year budget projection uh, deteriorated substantially between um, now and our, our previous update, which was last May. And so the, the 10-year deficit figure is up by $3.1 trillion. Um, the, the Debt ratio, which is another measure of the fiscal condition is high by historical standards and set to rise uh, into the future. And then deficits are wide as well, right? So we have uh, wide deficits projected, more than 5.3% of GDP. And that's even though, as I said before, even though the economy has rebounded from the pandemic. So, by historical standards, this is just an unusual and a difficult time that we have such a challenging fiscal situation, such wide deficits, even when the unemployment rate is as low it is, as it is, and yet there's signs that the economy is weakening. So, there's a whole confluence of um, difficult challenges facing the U.S.
1: Yeah, I noticed with the um, with the baseline deficits. Go up in the next couple of years, and then sort of level out a bit, maybe a little bit slower, and then then begin to pick up again in 2028. And I guess that's the part of the budget, since we worry about facing the future on this program, that I worry uh, about. And I'm, I'm, you know, what what accounts for that uh, short-term dip and then uh, back up again in 2028.
2: Yeah. So um, there's a couple of things happening over the next couple of years. Well, the pandemic related spending continues to fall away. And that was the reason for the marked uh, decline in the budget deficit over the, the last couple of years. Um, and that, so that continues. The, the pandemic uh, related spending falls away. And then going from 2025 to 2026, we had the expiration of important components of the 2017 Tax Act. Uh, and, and in particular, the personal income tax rates um, go back to the pre-December 2017 act um, rates. So there's about point, there's something less than one percentage point um, of of GDP in terms of revenue. Um, So nearly one percentage point um, uh, worth of GDP coming, um, coming in. So that's the, that's an improvement uh, in the fiscal situation as well. And of course that's under current law. And um, you know, so that, that's the, yeah, that, that it could be that if
1: stuff. they if the tax cuts are extended, there'd be uh, less revenue than is projected in the baseline. Um, they'll have to deal with that in 2025 or so.
2: <laughs> uh, at some at some point, and and it, again, of course, it, it can be allowed to expire right? right. Yeah. That's the current situation. And that's just like with social security that you mentioned in the introduction, there is current law, the trust fund in, in our projections is exhausted in 2032. And that point, the federal government has legal authority only to pay, you know, a certain amount. And so, you know, overall benefits would be um, reduced by more than 20% on, under current law. Uh,
1: and uh, I want to uh, probably get back to that uh, a little bit um, but but first I just want to get you mentioned it's uh, you know some of these things are high by historical standards and uh, of course I've been looking at these things for about 30 years and uh, one of the things that really struck me was one of the very first sentences in the overview which says that average deficit de- deficits will average two trillion over the next 10 years which you know, is really worth taking a minute to think about because a trillion dollar deficit was a huge thing when we reached it a couple of years ago. But, you know, CBO is not projecting a major economic calamity. They're not projecting that the war in Ukraine is going to turn into World War III. And yet the deficit levels that we're seeing, particularly in the out years, are at levels that you would associate uh, in the past with those sort of huge anomalies, but what would have been historical anomalies in the past are, are now routine in the baseline. That mm-hmm. just strikes me as a very significant and very troubling
2: change. Now, I agree with you. And that's, um, that is, as you said, it's noteworthy in our projections that this fiscal deterioration is happening, you know, even with a current law projection, that does not include some future fiscal challenge, you know, so, some sharp crisis. And if you look at the charts in our budget outlook, right, there's the usual debt to GDP chart, and one can see that the debt ratio goes up markedly during a crisis. I and mean, so we had, um, the pan- the, I'm sorry, we had the fiscal response to the pandemic and that resulted in the debt ratio going up, understandably because we had you know, lower revenue um, there were policy. Act, we had policy actions that reduced revenues, and then we had policy actions that increased spending, and that meant the debt ratio uh, went up. And the same thing during the 2008 uh, financial crisis, we had the same thing. We had policy responses and then a weak economy that affected revenue. And so we don't have those in our projection. We, and so if there's another crisis of some sort, well, that presumably would have a fiscal impact as well.
1: Um, This is called the budget and economic report. Uh, I know that Steve has some questions on the economic report part of that. But before we leave the budget and we'll we'll be weaving back and forth between the subjects, uh, I just want to nail down what what are the driving forces in the in that. uh, You know, the the deficits getting larger and larger uh, over time.
2: Uh, Okay, so let me talk about it in two horizons, you know, one is, well, what, what's happened in the, in the last year, right? Why is our 10-year outlook deteriorated as compared to what we said um, a year ago? And that's the $3.1 trillion in additional deficits. It's a mix. It's about half of that is legislative changes. Um, so $1.5 trillion of legislative changes over 10 years. Um, and that's the, the biggest single piece of that was the PACT Act. So this is additional... Um, uh, benefits for, for veterans. There's a new toxic toxic exposure fund that's been set up to provide benefits for veterans. Um, uh, so that's the, the biggest piece. There's then some other um, pieces that are a bit smaller in legislation. The uh, omnibus at the end of last year um, increased the um, discretionary spending and then that gets carried forward in our baseline. There's the CHIPS Act, there's some other things that increase spending. Um, so that's legislation. Um, uh, there's higher spending because of inflation, right? So high inflation over the past year means that spending goes up on lots of different things. We saw a very high social security COLA for beneficiaries, of course, and helps beneficiaries, but it reflects um, what, what happened to inflation over the past uh, two years or so. Um, revenues go up as well, so that offsets it. But that's, that's the $3.1 trillion over the um, 10 year projection. Then looking further ahead, we have the mix of demographics and technological change in healthcare that drives up healthcare spending. And we're an aging society and that affects both social security and Medicare. And then the, the cost of healthcare outpaces the cost of, of other things and outpaces the, the growth of the economy. And so that drives the, the longer term fiscal balance as well. Steve.
0: Yeah, thanks. So, you know, one of the big wild cards in recent years has been the the impact of COVID, uh, both in terms of just w- shutting down the economy, and in terms of the, the fiscal response, in terms of, of additional benefits enacted by Congress. Sure. But but the, the COVID pandemic raises a couple of other issues. You know, there's been talk of what's known as long COVID, where it appears that people have had some lingering effects of of of, of being infected and whether that shows up later, for example, in terms of, of disability, the Social Security Disability Program, um, you know, that's still an open question. But, you know, the other interesting thing is a lot of businesses have been moving from, you know, where they were shut down, everybody's working from home. But there seems to be a reluctance to go back to the traditional nine to five work week where everybody comes into the office and works, you know, the way it, the, the way things work pre-COVID. And I'm wondering. From, from from CBO's perspective, I mean, this, this raises sort of two difficult issues. One is, are there going to be some fundamental changes in the economy that affect, you know, productivity going forward? Right. Alternatively, even if it doesn't affect productivity, are there going to be measurement problems? In other words, you know, we try to estimate, you know, how much output per worker per you know, hour of, of employment. If people are working from home, it's always sort of a mystery. Are they working more? Or are they working less? Um, so just, just sort of talk briefly about how CBO views the impact of COVID going forward, both in terms of, of labor force participation and productivity, potential effects on disability. I mean, what, have you guys come to any conclusions yet in that area?
2: Oh, okay. No, it's a, it's a great question. Um, And in the report, we do provide some information on our long-term outlook. This goes out over 30 years. Later in the year, over the summer, we will put out a long-term budget outlook that looks more carefully uh, at the 30-year fiscal horizon. The the short version is that the fiscal situation gets yet more challenging the further out you go. Um, and, And you mentioned some of these challenges. You mentioned long COVID. I saw, I think over the weekend that there's a professional hockey player who um, put out a statement that he's being affected by the you know lingering effects of of COVID, um, and that's just just one example of um, the you know the way that uh, COVID continues to affect many people in in, in many ways. Um, There's a long term effect of what happened during the pandemic to schools, and I think we have a sense already that the impacts were skewed that the children who are already the most disadvantaged were the most further disadvantaged during the pandemic by, um, and since it's the way that the you know, school situation happened in the U.S. is quite different than uh, what happened in, in other countries facing the same virus. Um, so that that poses a long-term challenge to the U.S. On the other hand, there is the effect that you said about the reorganization of work um, that might lead to higher productivity. I mean, we're able to meet here, of course, on video rather than taking the time to get to get together in person. Um, and it's too soon to know for sure. We have to have a view. So in the outlook, we have some rebound in productivity, but over the long-term, we have a pretty modest view of, um, of productivity in part because of what's happening with deficits feeds into savings, investment, and capital accumulation. So the, the, the deficit situation means Lower capital in the future than would otherwise be the case, and that um, saps productivity. Right, workers are more productive when they have more machines, more tools to work with, more capital. Um, so that that's the challenges at different um, horizons. I'm um, just one last word on aging. You you mentioned also that society is changing, and that's the, for sure. That's right. And I, I mentioned the fiscal impact of aging. There's productivity impacts and labor force participation impacts and the un- unemployment rate is different, right? Because older workers tend to have a lower unemployment rate when they participate, right? So there's both the, are you in the labor force or not in the labor force? And, you know, at, at some point, older as workers get older, they tend to have lower participation, but when they do participate, they tend to be employed. Um, so that, that means as our society ages, that will, um, uh,
0: change the nature of the labor force as well. So you you mentioned the impact of, of deficits and, and debt on capital investment. You know, the standard economic argument is that budget deficits crowd out private investment. Um, you know, but it's, but it's been hard empirically to prove just how big that effect is. Do, do you think, though, that because of the changes in the nature of the economy, if we're moving to more of a service economy, are, are we well, I guess there's, this, this cuts both ways, potentially we're less capital intensive because more of the economy is coming in the service sector and there tends to be less capital in the service sector, which might imply that that's a, a bad thing. Um, but but that also might imply that the effect of the budget deficit on the economy is diminished because if capital is less important to the service sector, there's less deficit crowding out uh, in, in that area as well. I mean, is there is there anything to that?
2: Right, right. No, that's an, that's an interesting possibility. Um, and those sorts of changes will take place over a long period, right? There could be some, so I don't know the answer. That's the, that's the basic point. I'm trying to think of all the effects, the effects that you mentioned, and then in the other direction, potentially offsetting that is what's happening with, with workers and the labor, labor shortage in the U S or, you know, that is one. And then Two is a higher cost of capital reflecting some of this crowding out effect. Those both would tend to lead um, firms to substitute toward technology and toward capital. And we see this in lots of ways, the kiosks um, which will become ubiquitous in so many um, dimensions of customer service from restaurants to airports, banks and and so on. Um, So there's going to be effects in, in both directions.
1: Uh, We're going to have to take our first break. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. Concord Coalition uh, Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Phil Swagel. He's the director of the Congressional Budget Office, and uh, his agency just put out the annual Budget and Economic Outlook. Uh, We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Dr. Philip Swagel. He's the Director of the Congressional Budget Office, and we're discussing the CBO's latest budget and economic projections. Uh, Quick question first. Uh, We had a big surge in revenue last year. I mean, if you look Mm -hmm. at revenue as a percent of GDP, it's really, really high, like almost 20 Mm percent. But- CBO is projecting that that's going to drop off pretty dramatically this year and thereafter and stay somewhere in the range of 18% of, of, of GDP. What is the uh, reason for the, the big surge and the projected drop-off?
2: The key reason is what's happening with capital gains and what we project to happen with capital gains realizations and then payments of cap, of capital gains tax. Um, and going, looking backward, as you said, we had very strong revenues over the last uh, two years that we had total revenues at 19.6% of GDP. It was the actual for 2022, fiscal year 2022, which is over two percentage points of GDP higher than the 50 year average, which is 17.4% of GDP. Um, now, part of that is explainable behind high inflation. We tax a nominal income base. So high inflation meant um, High revenues, now, of course it meant high nominal GDP as well, but the tax system is progressive. So um, uh, so there's more income at the top and there's a uh, higher income inequality with a progressive tax system also means more revenue. So we, and since we got that, we got the rebound of the economy and we had high inflation and we we understood that affecting revenues, but then there's extra revenue. And so revenue was even higher over the last year than could be explained by our understanding of what was happening um, to output and inflation, to income and inflation. And it turned out to be capital gains. And that we've just recently, in December of last year, we got our first glimpse of the tax filings for 2021, right? People file in April, that's, many people get an extension to October. So it was only in December of 2022 that we had the actuals for 2021 and it was capital gains, that's what was missing. So. Um, uh, so we have those coming down, and um, you know, part of that is looking at what's happening in the markets. Part of that is a projection of return to a normal relationship between capital gains and the economy, and that's you know, very that's a big piece of um, why the, the receipts come down. Now they're still elevated for 2023. Our projection is. Uh, revenues, Total revenues are 18.3% of GDP, so it's still nearly a percentage point of GDP above the 50-year average, but um, it's not nearly as strong as during the pandemic.
1: And it stays about 18% through the baseline, I think, uh, somewhere around there. And it,
2: go- it goes up, as we discussed before, it goes up with the um, expiration of pieces of the 2017 tax act.
1: One of the things that you mentioned before that I think is very significant, and I want to talk a little bit more about it now. Is that for the first time insolvency of uh, the Social Security and Medicare trust funds occurs within the ten-year budget window, mm-hmm. and so it's no longer something that's way off in the future. If it's within the ten-year budget window, it's something that I think uh, you know creates a little bit more sense of urgency. Steve, I want uh, you're you're the uh, the Social Security uh, expert here, sir. Chief Economist, so I'll uh, turn this over to you for a question.
0: The uh, the trust fund insolvency dates appear to have moved within the budget window, as we like to say. Um, now, you guys actually project the old age survivors insurance trust fund separately from the disability trust fund. And the, the OESI fund is exhausted in 2032. And if you look at the size of the deficit in 2033 relative to the size of the remaining DI trust fund, if you add them together and create what sort of is the hypothetical combined trust fund, it would appear that, that on a combined basis, both trust funds would be exhausted in 2033, So, which is the, the 10th year of, of this 10-year budget window. So, you know, essentially you have Social Security and, and Medicare Part A going insolvent in the 10-year budget window, which is not to my knowledge is not not happened. Uh, you, you know you, you go back 30 years and we were projecting that somewhere in the early 2030s this would happen and it seemed like such a long time away mm-hmm. you know and now here we are and it's just 10 years away. I mean it, it, do you see any significance in this sort of now becoming part of the debate by being in the budget window or, is, or does it really not change the dynamic from your perspective?
2: It seems like an important thing. That the Social Security Trust Fund is exhausted in the budget window. Um, so let me focus on Social Security first and then Medicare uh, second. Um, you know, under current law, benefits will be reduced by over 20% once the trust fund is is exhausted. And that means doing nothing doesn't save Social Security. Doing nothing leads to reductions in benefits from what are now promised, but not payable we've always known that this was coming, that the trust fund exhaustion date was looming, but now it's within the budget window. So it's not off into the the future. Um, It it moved forward because of the effects of high inflation. so high inflation resulted in a high cost of living adjustment. Again, that's helpful for beneficiaries, but it's a result of high inflation that was the opposite of helpful for beneficiaries. uh, Medicare is, is a challenging one, and the Medicare exhaustion date actually moved back uh, a little bit, in some sense, also reflecting high inflation, but in, in a different way. Right, High inflation meant that nominal wage growth was strong, and so the contributions coming into Medicare rose, as they did with Social Security, but in Social Security, the COLA outpaced the growth in contributions, whereas in Medicare, we had strong growth of contributions, and healthcare spending rose, but not as sharply. And so that, and there are some other things as well that, that essentially push back the Medicare date to the end of, it, uh, of the window. Um, and Medicare is just a, it's a complex area because you know there's so many different things happening um, within the healthcare system. Whereas social security, right? There's revenues and there's benefits, there's spending, right, there's, I mean, GDP growth and productivity affects Affects those things, but there's relatively fewer policy levers um, with social, social Security as compared to with Medicare.
0: Yeah. So, do you, do you think? I mean, I, un, I understand the CBO baseline. Mm-hmm. It assumes that benefits will be paid throughout the the ten year window. In other words, you know, you mentioned there's this twenty percent reduction because if the trust fund is exhausted, mm-hmm. Social Security can't pay scheduled benefits on time. Mm-hmm. But the baseline assumes that benefits will continue to be paid i mean do do you think there's any utility? i mean obviously c b o is following the law and scoring conventions and you know mm-hmm. baseline practices showing the result they do, which is benefits are paid and that you know that, that's that's always been in the baseline. but I guess the question is, would it be helpful to reinforce to members of Congress that you know even though we show benefits are being paid, you know here's you, know, you you guys used to do these like alternative scenarios or alternative mm-hmm. assumptions. And I mean, would it be helpful to show, you know, okay, here's the baseline and benefits get paid and we borrow the money, even though the trust fund is, is exhausted, but here's the alternative way. And that is the trust fund is exhausted and benefits are cut across the board. Mm-hmm. But somehow, you know, members seem reluctant to, 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 to dip their toes into the water of social security reform. And as you say, doing nothing really isn't an option because that's gonna to lead to, to, to benefit cuts, but the baseline doesn't show those benefit cuts. And so there, there, perhaps there's some other way to convey that information. Is there? Have you guys thought about what, what alternative scenario could be presented?
2: We will do those later in the summer when we do, well, so we have two two reports coming. Next is um, we'll analyze the president's budget. My understanding is that it's set to be released in early March. Um, we get data from OMB on the actual spending of last year, we get the president's proposals, we apply our economics to what the president has sent us and provide a report on that. Then we update the budget outlook and that that typically is adopted by the budget committees as the scoring baseline, that's up to them, of course. And then later in the summer, we'll do the long-term budget outlook And then um, as part of that, we would provide these alternate scenarios. What we've done in the past is stronger or weaker economic growth and then higher and lower interest rates. I think given the uncertainties in the economy, we probably need to do more dimensions of these um, different scenarios. But that's something we need to think about between now and the summer.
1: Policy-wise, are we... Drifting towards general revenue financing of, of these programs. I mean, if they don't raise revenue to cover the benefits or cut other spend, or make some changes within the program with, uh, say, we're talking about social security. The default mechanism uh, is general revenue finance. Because <laughs> uh, nobody really thinks that we're going to get it. I mean, a 20% benefit cut that you mentioned is, Current law, but uh, if if we hadn't phased in any changes then, and they didn't want to have that take effect, you'd have to have some sort of uh, legislation transferring general revenues to Social Security, wouldn't you?
2: Uh, that's right, and it would take, as you said, when when I said that's right, it's because it would take legislation, as you said, um, to change the statutory right. authority for full promised benefits to be paid, um, and. and you know, what a future Congress will do, I, you know, I I can't say. Um, Acting sooner makes things easier, because acting sooner means that there's some generations who will shoulder their share of the burden of the adjustment, you know, whether the adjustment is higher taxes, or lower benefits, you know, higher taxes than under current law, or lower benefits than are now promised, but not payable. Right? So that's, that's I'm not using the word cut because right we're, we'd be cutting benefits, but they're not payable. Right. So what does that you know what does that mean? You're cutting something that's not payable. Um, so, but it's higher ta- higher taxes than under current law, or lower benefits than promised. Doing that later means that there's some generations that don't shoulder their share of that burden, and of course within a given generation that. Burden can be distributed in a way that policymakers want. And the policy proposals that we've analyzed in the past generally have a distributional inflection that lo- lower income workers generally do not see those benefit reductions. In fact, many of them um, have higher benefits at the bottom, and then lower benefits or higher, higher taxes at the top.
1: We're going to have to take our second break. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are discussing the latest budget and uh, economic outlook from the Congressional Budget Office with the Director of the Congressional Budget Office, Phil Swagel. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are now joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, and we're talking with Dr. Phil Swagel. He is the uh, Director of the Congressional Budget Office, and the CBO just put out its annual budget and economic outlook, which is a real gut punch. It shows annual deficits averaging over two trillion dollars uh, for the next uh, ten years, and That is unusually high as a percentage of GDP as well. Um, Tori, thank you for joining us. Jump in.
2: Phil, got a question for you. Uh, New Congress, uh, new chairman of the the House Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, A lot of times, uh, chairmen come in with some some ideas uh, about what they wanna see and what they want um, CBO to analyze. Uh, I know Republicans, for example, have been really interested in dynamic scoring, um, and so I just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, uh, how, what you expect from the, the new chairman of the house and Senate budget committees and how that's going to affect CBO's work. CBO works very closely with the budget committees in both chambers in both that the house and the Senate and their new chairs in both committees, um, in the house, it's chairman Arrington, um, as a, a member of Congress from Texas, um, and in the Senate, it's Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island, um, in, in the House, the new house rules direct CBO to focus on two things among among others, there's there's many things but I'll I'll Mm -hmm. mention two in particular. So one is dynamic analysis and that's for us to provide the Congress with information on the fiscal impacts of policy that affects the overall economy. So something like the December 2017 tax act, CBO did analysis of that. That it said that the provisions that of the tax act would boost business investment and do it in a large enough scale to increase the size of the economy. There's some things that went in the other direction, but the net of it was a larger economy, higher GDP, and that in turn had fiscal feedback. And the tax cut didn't pay for itself, but it offset some of the cost as mm-hmm. a result of that stronger growth and higher revenue. And the the house has instructed us to do that um, again. And we would do that with legislation as set forth in the house rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the same thing with inflation, there's um, a a lot of concern in the Congress and in the nation about the effects of high inflation on um, American families, American businesses, and we've been instructed to provide Congress with more analysis on any potential inflationary effects of legislation and we will certainly do that. Um, in the Senate, um, Chair, uh, Chairman Whitehouse has spoken uh, o- about his plans for the committee and among the, the plans that he's spoken about are focusing on climate and the economic mm-hmm. and budgetary impacts of climate change. And he held a, a hearing on that topic last week with several dis- distinguished panelists participating in the hearing. as at CBO, we've been working on climate change for several years, almost since the very start of when I um, uh, came on board as CBO as, d- as director in June of 2019, um, we now have the economic effects of climate change in the economic baseline and therefore having a, a budgetary effect. We have modeling work on electric vehicles and the power sector. We're working on a large scale climate model. We have lots of other work going on um, in, in that space. So I'm confident that we will respond um, appropriately to both um, these new interests from the House and the Senate. And that's what we're here for. We're here to support the Congress. And I'm, I'm happy that we'll be able to do that for both chambers.
1: Steve, um, we've done a lot of looking and uh, analyzing of the student loan provisions that the Biden administration has um, proposed. Uh, Steve, uh, you want to take a question for Phil?
0: Yeah, sure. So obviously, the big, big news last year and, and the beginning of this year as well is, uh, the president has had a several student loan proposals: the debt forgiveness and the public service forgiveness, and and of course the income-related uh, repayment plans. And and I noticed that you guys in your 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 budget update had some estimates for the the proposals announced last year: the debt forgiveness and the the repayment pause. And then I guess there was some some additional regs that were proposed on, on public service uh, and and other items. I guess I was surprised though the the administration in January issued a federal register proposed rule to modify the existing income repayment uh, provisions and you guys did not provide an estimate and I I guess obviously you guys were in the in the process of preparing your your um, your baseline at the time this was announced and I guess I'm just curious do you, do you have plans to provide an additional estimate of of the income-related repayment plan and what's sort of the the timing or thought on that?
2: Um, Yes, we will provide more information on the fiscal impacts of the income-driven repayment plan. The rule that was put forward by by President Biden and his administration, they finalized the rule after we had finished our budgetary projections. Um, it, It is a complex rule. So we are analyzing it um, and we will have that in time for the spring update um, of the budget baseline. So I I anticipate us providing more information on that. Part of the complexity is that the cost of the the changes to the income driven repayment varies with what happens to the debt forgiveness and the debt cancellation. it, it, right, that had 20000 $20, dollars of debt cancellation for most families, and then some families got ten thousand dollars per student, not per family, it's per student. Um, that's in front of the Supreme Court later this month. If the Supreme Court eventually says no to that, or says no in part, and that's changed, well, that would be you know first a, an adjustment to the deficit going forward, right? The the Cancellation itself was booked by the administration in fiscal year 2022. They announced it at the end of September and that's in fiscal year 22. So it's already raising the deficit by nearly $400 billion in their calculation. Um, For last year, if the Supreme Court says no to that, well, the future deficit would be lower by some amount, presumably about the same amount. Um, And then the cost of income driven repayment would vary. If the debt cancellation, cancellation is canceled, well then there's more debt to be forgiven by the income driven repayment. And so the cost of that program would be higher. And so we're waiting both on the Supreme Court and undertaking our own analysis. And as you can imagine, we're doing it both ways. We're looking at different ways that the Supreme Court might rule. So it's a complex um, uh, area. If I can, I'll just say one, one more sentence, which is that as you mentioned, the administration undertook a series of other actions, and those are in our budget projections, and those together come to nearly $100 billion. So there's the $400 billion of the cancellation that was in fiscal year 22. There's nearly $100 billion of other things that's in fiscal year 23. And then there's the income-driven repayment, which we're still analyzing.
0: Yeah. So I noticed you did add a new element to this year's report where you have um, a little chart illustrating the changes in the baseline due to technical assumptions. And one is regarding student loans. Hmm. You essentially had the, the subsidy rate or what would think of it as the cost of the student loan program. Basically the subsidy rate was breaking even for every dollar that we loaned out to students. We got back in present value, roughly a dollar. So the subsidy rate was almost a break even, whereas that was in last year's baseline. Whereas this year going forward, the, the subsidy rate is around 10 or 12 percent, which means that for every dollar for every dollar that we loan out we only get back about 90 cents. Am I interpreting that correctly? Is that?
2: Yeah, yes, you are. And there's a sense in which part of that is an artifact of the budgetary rules right by law, we are required to evaluate the student loans you know assuming um, current law and assuming current regulations and current administrative actions. Mm-hmm. And then we evaluate those at the treasury rate, right? So discounting the future repayments back to the present using the treasury rate, um, uh, which ha- has, you know, has has some um, technical issues uh, there as well. So in the past, it looked like student loans were a profit center for the federal government. That the more loans we made, the more money the federal government made, you know, made in return. I think we've learned that that's not the case. That there's been substantial uh, forgiveness and substantial delays of the payments of those student loans. You know, during the pandemic, student loan payments were put on pause first by statute, and then after the statutory um, uh, period ended, um, the payment pause was uh, continued by um, by you know the first President Trump and then President Biden, um, and that has a budgetary cost as well.
0: So if, if the uh, income-related repayment rules go forward, that subsidy cost is likely to be even higher, but that, that, that's not reflected in the current baseline.
2: That's correct. That additional subsidy cost would have to be um, uh, put into the, the subsidy cost going forward, and that's, that's not there yet.
1: We've uh, only got about a minute or two left. I, just, uh, I wanted to ask about uh, the debt limit. Uh, CBO made a projection about uh, when the extraordinary measures would run out that the treasury is taking now to stay under the debt limit. Uh, I just wonder if you could make a comment about that.
2: Um, yeah. so at the same time last Wednesday that we put out our budget and economic outlook, we put out an update to a series of reports that we put out on the debt limit. Um, and our projection has the extraordinary measures being undertaken by the treasury now, those extraordinary measures would be exhausted (laughs) sometime later this year, we had between July and September. So we had a three month range. We don't know exactly when because there's some uncertainty about, um, uh, essentially the revenues is the biggest um, piece of uncertainty. Um, We have a projection of revenues. If revenues are considerably stronger than we project well, then the exhaustion date could be later. If revenues are weaker, well, then the exhaustion date could be toward the beginning of our window or even before the window. And that's that's the key uncertainty. We'll get more information on that through April, really into late April and early May as the IRS um, opens the envelopes with tax payments and caches those payments.
1: Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. And uh, Phil, I want to thank you very much. I know your schedule is very busy. Uh, So thanks for coming in. Um, You've been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Chief Economist Steve Robinson and Tori Gorman, our Policy Director. And I have been talking to Phil Swagel. He's the Director of the Congressional Budget Office. And we have been discussing CBO's latest budget and economic outlook. Tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future.